What did we end up replacing the Kia EV6 with? Well, the EV6 is still here for a moment because it has not stopped raining recently. So the EV6 is going to be listed for sale uh, probably sometime in the next three weeks or so, I would say. If you're interested in a lightly loved EV6 GT line, uh, be sure and uh, follow us on Facebook. There'll be more details over there. Uh, you should know that the Facebook channel name has changed. It's the, now the new branding, the Auto Buyer's Guide branding there. So link down there at the bottom of your screen there. Um, it's about 7,000 miles or so. We're going to sell it privately. That's the, the plan there at any rate. Uh, now, we did end up replacing it with a plug-in hybrid. Uh, last year, I was really torn as to what we were going to replace the EV6 with. Was it going to be another EV? Was it not going to be an EV this time? Uh, and I decided to get a plug-in hybrid for a few reasons. I really like the concept of a plug-in hybrid as a gasoline mitigation tool, um, as a vehicle that uses fewer resources right now we are at a point in in ev production where we're still struggling to meet demand for full evs and battery production and resource production uh, is still struggling to meet the production for really all electrified vehicles at the moment um, and if we thought about things as a society maybe we could put these resources to better use by making smaller battery EVs, etc. So I ended up buying a Mitsubishi plug-in hybrid. Uh, that's what all of you voted for. We uh, ran a poll on Facebook, on uh, Instagram, and on YouTube as well. And that was by far the biggest selection, or the, the, the top choice from everybody was for that Mitsubishi Outlander. So uh, more details to come on that one. We'll have an update video as soon as it stops raining. And uh, you can ask all those questions down there. What about a plug-in? What about no, no plug? Uh, I was really torn on that decision, but we've already had some hybrids as long terms. I, we haven't had a plug-in. Um, so we've had trucks, we've had um, wagons, I've had luxury cars, I've had diesels, etc., but never had anything with a plug, so, or a plug-in hybrid, so that's how we went there. Uh, let's see here, can't be as bad as third row and Outlander 10 years ago. Uh, the third row is not any bigger than Outlander 10 years ago, to be perfectly honest. A number of other questions that came up here earlier in the day for folks that maybe weren't able to join us were, uh, why EV6 won car EV of the year <clears throat> last year rather than the Tesla Model 3 and why would I get the EV6 over the Model 3? I would say a lot of this comes down to personal preference. Um, there are a few areas where the EV6 is notably objectively better than a Model 3 and, and I found this comparison interesting because a lot of folks ended up asking this. They weren't asking about Model Y, they were asking about Model 3. And that does make sense because Model Y is a bit bigger on the inside, it's a bit roomier, and EV6 comes across as a more of a sporty hatchback sedan kind of thing. Um, EV6 has a bit more cargo room because of the hatch. I think the interior is actually a little bit better laid out. The seats are a bit more comfortable than the Model 3. It, of course, has an instrument cluster where you'd expect it to be. You can get a heads-up display. Um, there's a real key for it. So if you want those more traditional car-like features and feels, you're going to find that in the Kia. It also charges much faster than the Tesla Model 3. <clears throat> Tesla has a pretty high peak charge rate in most of their vehicles, but the charge curve doesn't sustain that high charge rate for as long. 
And in the EV6 and the other related eGMP platform vehicles, you can go from 0% to 100% in about 45 minutes or so, 10% to 80% in 18 minutes. So it's very, very fast charging. Um, but then there's the trade-off. You have to use a regular CCS charger, and that can be a mixed experience. Uh, on the Tesla side, everything is going to function pretty, pretty normally. Um, the analogy here is this is like the Android versus iPhone debate. And I've always thought it was interesting that there are so many Apple detractors. I couldn't possibly buy an Apple phone. It's a closed ecosystem. And then I'll go buy a Tesla. That's the same thing, really. And the reason that Teslas all work so well with their chargers is because of that closed ecosystem thing. So pros and cons there. Uh, obviously, the Tesla will be a little bit faster. The range may be a little bit longer. But keep in mind, the way that Tesla does their EPA range testing is not the same as other companies do. So in the real world, Tesla's numbers tend to be lower than you might expect, whereas some other car companies tend to be a little bit higher. Well, now let's dive into some of the questions here. Uh, I am also excited about the CX-90 driving impressions, and stay tuned because that is happening... I want to say next week is when I'll be driving that. So be sure and stay tuned. You'll find some details initially. What we can cover right off the bat will be on uh, Facebook, and then there'll be a video following that, obviously. Uh, here is a good one that I am really intrigued myself about, Grand Highlander versus Honda Pilot. Um, I would say my initial impression would be a preference towards the Grand Highlander, mainly because it is bigger inside. Some of the details are still sketchy. Uh, Toyota, for some reason, wants to drip the details out. I don't know why they want to, I don't know, create some extra buzz. Um, but we don't know legroom figures. We don't know some headroom figures here and there. But by feel, after having sat in both of them at the auto show, Grand Highlander is definitely bigger. Uh, if you're a fan of hybrids, if you're a fan of bigger screens, you'll find those in the Grand Highlander as well. And pricing, I, I suspect will be pretty respectable as well. They were pretty upfront that the target was Telluride and Palisade. And if that is true, then I would not be surprised if Highlander actually saw a price cut at some point and Grand Highlander uh, maybe was a little bit above Pilot, a little bit above Telluride. That kind of would make sense. Uh, you will have it in Canada, according to Mazda. <clears throat> in Europe, they have the CX-60 and CX-80. In the U.S., we'll get the CX-70 and CX-90. Uh, but Mazda's production scale schedule seems to be a little bit uh, lagging here. The CX-90 was a little bit delayed, not too delayed, um, but it's, it's, it's a slow roll there. Remember, Mazda's a very small company. Uh, so let's move on here. Thoughts on the CX-70. Um, I am curious to see what the CX-70 will be like as well. I would assume it's going to be a solid competitor to those two options, the RDX and the GV70. It is going to be basically a shorter two-row CX-90, which I really like the look of. I haven't driven it yet. That'll be next week. Um, but I am excited. I'm especially excited because I had honestly expected Mazda's pricing to really increase. And CX-90 ended up being a lot less expensive than I had guessed. You can just check out our CX-90 video on that. Uh, my cost predictions were definitely off, especially on the very top trim. Uh, and I suspect that CX-70 will be pretty similar there. Uh, moving on in order, let's move on here. Road trip across the USA, comfort, reliability, and fuel economy. Um, you know, road trip vehicles, honestly minivan probably would be my top pick for a road trip vehicle because they're so practical there's so much room uh, especially for people in the back 
Um, I would probably get a Pacifica Hybrid because that's going to be the most comfortable for the second row passengers. They're relatively nice to drive, etc. Uh, the Sienna Hybrid is also an excellent option, although weird twist, uh, the plug-in Pacifica actually gets better fuel economy in a lot of people's ratings. Uh, so let's see here. Make What do I make of GM and Ford asking people to take a buyout? Ooh, I love industry news and takes. Um, I think it's logical. Um, Ford and GM have a lot of legacy legacy employees and legacy plants that they need to worry about as far as their transition to uh, not just other forms of transportation, um, but also, to be honest, um, just different ways of doing business. Uh, the business model that the traditional car manufacturers have been operating on is definitely under pressure from not just startups. And in fact, I would argue that GM and Ford are really not seeing much pressure from Tesla. Tesla's demographic and Tesla shoppers are putting pressure on the luxury players. Um, what's putting pressure on GM and Ford is the rise of the continuing rise of the imports and their continuing shrinking set uh, segment uh, size of, of the American market here, the their share. Um, and they have a lot of plants, a lot of legacy employees, a lot of retirees that are frankly going to be difficult for them to deal with going forward. They did, did try to shed some of that legacy application in their bankruptcy, but they still have a lot of it. And when you look at a legacy car company like these that generally paid better than some of these other companies, uh, especially historically, they have uh, retirement plans, they have health plans for their employees, etc. They can't just abandon those employees, and, and it wouldn't be right to do that either. But these companies do have all those obligations that were set in a world where they totally dominated the North American market. You know, when, the, when America was... Uh, eight, nine million vehicles a year as far as the auto sales a year. They were six million of them, probably, the, the two of them put together. Uh, so that put them in a position where they could really, they had the ability to fund all those obligations. And now we're in a situation where Ford is is much smaller than in, in a relative sense than they ever have been before. And the imports that don't have these kind of cross structures are are really knocking at their door. So it's going to be interesting to see how that really goes there. Is Toyota's hybrid max system so inefficient because it always sends power to the rear? Unlikely. Um, the hybrid max system is not sending that much power to the rear, although it is trying to send some. The biggest reasons that the hybrid max system is inefficient versus the others would be the traditional automatic transmission, which is a six-speed unit, and the fact that it has a turbocharged higher output engine. So the focus of hybrid max was not on efficiency. If they had designed this system, uh, say, around the same building blocks as a, their regular hybrid system, the two-and-a-half-liter hybrid, and instead of the planetary power split transmission, they used a six-speed automatic and this motor setup, it probably would not be far off in terms of its fuel efficiency, even with more power going to the rear motor. Um, you can approximate some of this uh, rear power uh, setup in, say, a RAV4 in snow mode. It will try and send more power to the rear axle under a wider variety of operating speeds, etc. And it doesn't really have that big of an impact on fuel economy. Um, but it's just the general nature of that system. Also, the tire sizes and the power outputs and all of that that goes into that system. I have been surprised, though, that Toyota's direction has been towards this, um, this two-hybrid lineup in some of their core models, a performance hybrid and a regular hybrid. You can look at Hybrid Max 
as a replacement for the V6. That's probably the best way to think of it. And in that respect, it's a significant fuel economy bump over the V6, whereas the regular hybrid drivetrain is the replacement for the base engine uh, with a, a bit of a performance bump. So the, the most fuel economy you can get in the vehicle. Trying to replace a Volvo V60 Banyol GTI Integra spec, what else? Uh, that's an, oh, that's an interesting options there. Um, I have a personal preference towards the GTI. I think I would get the Volkswagen over the Integra. Um, th everything that I like about the Honda Civic is basically there in the Integra, but a lot of the flaws of the Civic, I think, are also there in the Integra. Um, I like the manual transmission, but I think that a dual-clutch transmission or a more powerful turbo would be a better fit for the Integra, generally speaking. Wider tires, etc. I think also would be would be a welcome thing there. Um, the GTI is just a lot of fun, too. Let's see here. A Mitsubishi Solid V. I hope so, too. We'll see how this goes. I mean, it's essentially a Nissan Rogue with Mitsubishi's plug-in hybrid drivetrain. And up until recently, the Outlander was actually the most popular plug-in hybrid vehicle in the world. So there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of... Uh, uh, track record for this plug-in hybrid system. Um, so hopefully that all bodes well there. Sequoia, yes, the ride is not great in the back. The Sequoia is the only entry in that segment that does not use an independent rear suspension. Uh, and the result is definitely a poor ride quality back there. How is the Sportage Hybrid? There's actually a video review on that out there. I like the Sportage Hybrid a lot. Um, if you prefer the way a regular automatic transmission feels, it's going to be a solid option. If you want the best fuel economy or the best reliability, you'll find that in the RAV4. Thoughts on MDX versus alternatives? You know, I like the MDX a lot, and I find myself really torn in some ways about it. Um, Honda's a very conservative engineering company, for better or for worse. So in this generation pilot, this generation MDX, and the rest of the line, they didn't really push the envelope, and I was hoping that they would get outside their comfort zone with the latest MDX because they were pushing hard for the Type S and, and some of the extra features that we find in the MDX. This is the first generation to offer front seat massage, for instance. Uh, we also have real wood, something that we found in the previous generation MDX, finally. Um, but if you're looking for something that has the most luxurious feel for the dollar, it's not going to be the MDX. And I think that that for me would be the Volvo XC90, even though it is getting on in years. I do find it interesting that over the last few years, XC90 has grown and grown and grown and is now the second best seller in this segment. And I think the reason for that is some of the failings that we see in the MDX. These are minor things, mind you. So it's nothing major. Every entry in this segment is a perfectly solid vehicle. But for me... I wish that Acura had done things like spend a bit more time on interior parts quality. When you take a look at at a vehicle for $66,000, you know, where you can get the Type S quite easily, and you take a look at the way the door panel, the dashboard, the instrument cluster, and the A-pillar all meet, they come together in this one spot where these five major components come together, and all five have different textures and slightly different colors. And you don't see that in the Mercedes or the Lexus or the Volvo or the Audi. It's not a reliability problem. It's not a functional problem. It's probably not even a rational problem, but it does come across as just being 
being a little bit careless, I guess, in the design. I'm also not the biggest fan of Acura's infotainment system. I think it's difficult to use. It's not intuitive, even though Acura would claim otherwise. I do love the transmission. Um, their Type S engine is great. The two liter engine also has a nice feel in, uh, in Acura's lineup. And the remaining V6s are great too in Acura's lineup as well. Um, the 10 speed automatic transmission is lovely, but you will notice that like Type S performance, it's not where you would expect it to be with that kind of horsepower output. And that's simply due to the reality of the engine layout that we have uh, in the MDX. You can't put that much power through a front wheel drive transmission. And uh, the way that Volvo, for instance, gets around it is they have a 155 horsepower motor in the back. So the front transmission, et cetera, is not doing anything more than 300 horsepower. Everything else is happening on the back. And we actually find something very similar in the Lexus RX with the hybrid max drivetrain. So I would say solid option, but there are definitely some better options out there. Um, if you do have children in child seats, I would recommend looking at something like the QX60 from Infinity. It's not going to be as exciting as the MDX, but it is going to be a lot more child seat friendly. So definitely keep that part in mind. So I saw someone asking here about the EV9. Definitely excited about the EV9 on the one hand, but also prepared to be a tiny bit disappointed on the other hand. Um, and my concern with the EV9 is going to be range. This is not the most rational concern because... As I've said many times before, the average American doesn't drive 300 miles a day, but if you want to, it doesn't look like you're going to easily be able to do that in most versions of the EV9. Because somewhat unexpectedly, Kia is going to use the same battery pack that we find in the very, very sleek, very pro sexy profile EV6 in the bigger and much boxier EV9. And that means that there's just not going to be a lot of power available. Uh, so exactly what kind of range we'll find in the real world, I don't know yet, but I would not be surprised if in some of the top versions it was under 200 miles in real world driving, which again is totally rational for the average American. But if you want a road trip, that's going to be kind of a pain in the bottom. It is going to charge wicked fast though, just like the EV6 and everything else. Um, but that range figure could be a problem. Now, on the one hand, you know, 10% to 80% charge only 18 minutes. So that road trip is going to make that easier. If you want to stop and have a bathroom break 15 minutes and you're back on the road again. Um, but how do, how does the customer respond to that? I just don't know yet. I would love to know what people think about that. So be sure and, you know, post questions, comments down there about that range figure down there. Yes, it appears that it's going to be approximately the same size as the EV6. And I say approximately because there have been some rumors that instead of 77.4, it might be 82 kilowatt hours. Uh, remember that when we're talking of some of these photos here about gaining 69 kilowatt hours and at 73% state of charge, remember that that DC fast charge stations are not 100% efficient and they bill you for the power in. So inversion losses, cooling losses, battery resistance losses all must be taken into account. Um, and if I DC fast charge my EV6, for instance, at 0% state of charge, uh, it's going to take about 87 kilowatt hours, uh, 86 to 87, especially if it's hot outside. Uh, to get the battery from zero to 100%, and the battery is only 77.2. So um, it's not a one-to-one -one ratio there. Uh, let's see here. Outlander plug-in, Sportage plug-in, or wait for an Equinox EV. Looking at loaded versions. Um, 
I really like the Sportage plug-in hybrid. And to be honest, and this this is one of those things where it's a do as I say, not as I do thing. Uh, uh, we buy long-term vehicles here because we think that they're interesting for videos. We think that you might want to see content on them. And occasionally we will ask all of you to vote on what you want us to do, uh, which is why we have the Mitsubishi Outlander. This was not my personal top pick. I would rather have had, I think, the Sorento plug-in hybrid, I think was a better fit for my personality and my needs and the needs of the office, etc. Um, our vehicles also get used by the materials engineering company that is jammed inside the same LLC that hosts everything else. So they get used by all the employees for pickups and deliveries around Silicon Valley, etc. Um, and I think that would have been a better fit for this conjoined thing and also for content, but I was not voting myself. Uh, you all had a say in this and you chose the Mitsubishi and here we are with the Mitsubishi. Um, it does have a teeny tiny third row. So versus Sportage or Equinox EV, if you want an emergency use third row, this is there. Uh, it's not a big one. Uh, you can see in the first drive video that I have, you could put an adult back there, but it's going to be very, very tight. Um, the Outlander is theoretically a compact vehicle, so it's it's a little bit longer than Rogue, a little bit longer than CRV, but they jammed a third row in the back, and of course the battery pack has to be in there as well. So keep all of those relative pros and cons in mind. Uh, big advantages for the Outlander are that it is relatively inexpensive. I do think the interior is well done, uh, just like I think the Rogue's interior is relatively well done as well. Um, and the plug-in hybrid system has been pretty reliable in the past. Range is decent at 38 miles of EV range, but the fuel economy after the battery has been depleted is only 26 miles per gallon, so not the best. Um, you will find significantly better fuel economy after the battery has been exhausted in the Sportage or the RAV4 Prime, etc. So definitely keep that one in mind. Uh, when will we see a new Honda Odyssey? I'm guessing that's going to be at least two years out. Um, I haven't heard of too much from Honda on this, but the Odyssey really isn't that old, and some of their generations have lasted a little bit long. Ooh, this is a good one. Grand Cherokee L or Acura MDX? I like the Grand Cherokee L. Um, I am accused of being a Stellantis fan, so keep that in mind for whatever it's worth. Uh, but I think unquestionably, Jeep has been doing great things for their interiors. Um, obvious downsides for the Grand Cherokee are going to be predicted reliability. It's an open-ended question because it's brand new and it's a Jeep, so keep that in mind. Uh, obviously, complexity of systems, much higher on Grand Cherokee. Air suspension... Uh, two-speed transfer cases, locking differentials, all the off-road stuff, all of that just breeds unreliability because there's so much more on it. Uh, but the interior is, I think, much better done than in the MDX, to be honest. You're certainly going to pay for it, though, because it's not a luxury-branded vehicle. Um, it's pretty expensive. Uh, fuel economy is not going to be where you'll find uh, the MDX. But, of course, uh, it's going to have a V8 under the hood optional if you act fast. Um, it does appear that that Jeep is going to be replacing that with the inline six twin turbo engine in pretty short order. Uh, but at the moment, you still have that 5.7 liter V8. Uh, let's see here. Uh, what would you think if Chrysler used the Wagner platform to make an electric liftback? I am intrigued to see what large platform vehicles we're going to get from Stellantis. Um, they're the kind of company where you can't really 
you can't really bet on anything because they'll do crazy things. And we know that there's going to be an STLA large and an STLA frame electric platform. Um, all rumors point to STLA large being not just an EV platform, but also plug-in hybrids and regular gasoline vehicles, because Stellantis has not pledged to an all-electric future in the same windows that other car companies have, and Charger and Challenger sell extraordinarily well for what they are currently, so it's unlikely that they're willing to give up that segment entirely. Um, they're going to give it up for a bit because they've already closed down the factory essentially here or have announced it's closing as it's going to retool for EVs. But that factory was designed for way more cars than they will sell on the EV side. Um, and we know that there's going to be a plug-in hybrid and a battery electric something Wagoneer-like. What exactly that will be, we don't know. Uh, I, get this, uh, I get this question a lot. So this is an intriguing one. Um... Some of this, I think, comes to uh, maybe, what's the polite way of saying this? Certain online personalities that um, don't think about how new car customers buy cars. Um, if you are in the market for a used car, obviously certain considerations and certain engineering decisions that go into making a new car are important to you um, because they will affect you as the next owner of the vehicle. But... This is kind of, it's going to sound weird, but no, that's not what I meant. This is going to sound rude, um, but no car company designs cars for their second life. It's just not how it works. Car companies design cars for the first owner. They design new cars to be bought by new car shoppers, and they design cars for new car buyer preferences, and new car buyers generally want engines that are quiet. Um, timing belts are quieter than timing chains. It's just a fact of life. Uh, timing belts are also slightly less expensive than timing chains, generally speaking. Um, timing belts can have a very long lifetime, and especially if the engine is a non-interference valve train design, nothing bad will happen. Uh, again, non-interference drivetrain only. Nothing bad will happen if the timing chain breaks other than the car won't move. It's not going to damage the engine. Actual timing belt failures uh, and damage to the engine is very, very rare within the first 150 even 200,000 miles in a modern vehicle. It's not the biggest uh, point of failure in these vehicles. Direct injection has also been assailed because of some of Volkswagen's issues with direct injection. So um, these particular issues do not really seem to present themselves in the majority of direct injected vehicles out there. Uh, why some car companies choose to do direct injection and do multi-port injection often has to do more with efficiency and power profile management than carbon buildup in the engines. Uh, when you take a look at, for instance, Mercedes engines, BMW engines, there has been a very limited amount of carbon buildup discovered even in long cycle lifetimes. Um, Honda's research and, and um, warranty claim response data, et cetera, doesn't really appear to support any concern on this front. But I would say that if it is a concern, then there's simply other vehicles that, that you can buy. Um, new vehicles are, are typically bought by people that keep them under 100,000 miles and under seven years, generally speaking. Um, and these are the trade-offs that go into that particular usage calculation. Um, so again, nobody is designing their car for the second life Everybody's designing them for the first life, and different car companies have different uh, different customer preferences and different customer desires around that. 
Uh, Polestar 2 is having second child, needs car seats. What's the best option? Oh, yeah, that is going to be a problem. I would say depending on the height and general dimensions of your spouse, that's going to really determine where you go. Um, you'll really be needing something with a lot of combined legroom. Remember that when some manufacturers talk about second row legroom, second row legroom is not a useful statistic to go by because the front seat moves forward and backward. So where is the front seat when you're measuring this legroom? That's a critical thing. So you should always take a look at these two measurements together. Um, I would recommend looking at something along the lines of, uh, you know, Tesla Model Y has a pretty decent amount of second row room. Still going to be pretty tight, though. Um, you might be best off in something like a Hyundai Santa Fe plug-in hybrid. That that larger mid-size two-row is going to give you more room. Uh, Ford Edge is not bad. It's not great, but it's it's better than than that next size category down. Santa Fe has a lot of legroom, though, mind you. Um, if you are looking for um, the extra width across the bench seat in the second row, that's also going to be an excellent option. Um, anything that is boxier and squarer and has uh, longer seat tracks up front is going to be a good option. I would probably steer away from things like the Kia EV6. It has a very low roof line, um, so that's going to be problematic. Obviously, uh, Tesla Model 3 is going to have a lower roof line as well because of its sedan profile, so I would steer away from those. Um, you might have to go back to a plug-in hybrid versus an EV. Although something like the upcoming Blazer EV, depending on its delivery time, it may have that larger second row that, you, that you're interested in. The Polestar 3 also has a pretty big second row, but timing again could be a problem there. So uh, I would check those out there and let me know how that goes. That's a good alternative, actually. Uh, Pacifica Hybrid would be great. <coughs> Pardon me here. Um, a lot of people don't think or don't want minivans, so that is a consideration. Um, also, I would say the Sorento, while I'm thinking about it, the Sorento would be a good option for people with kids. Um, you have the emergency use third row. It's not quite as emergency use as some, as the Outlander plug-in hybrid, for instance, uh, but the second row is pretty accommodating, and there is that plug-in hybrid version, and of course, a regular hybrid as well. Uh, so let's see here. Thoughts on a 2.7 liter turbo F-150 Silverado. Uh, I like the Ford 2.7 liter turbo a lot. Um, fuel economy is excellent. It's a bit more refined than the Silverado 2.7 liter turbo. The fuel economy actually is shockingly good, I would say, in that Ford F-150. Um, the 2.7 has been a fantastic engine from that perspective. Reliability data is still a little bit difficult to divine because of the age of these two engines, relatively speaking. I would assume long-term reliability in the 2.7 liter from Chevy is going to be better because it's a simpler design. It's only four cylinders, not six. It only has one turbo, not two. Um, but the other thing to know about this 2.7 liter from Chevy is that it's paired with the eight-speed automatic, and I think that was a big misstep. Chevy tries really hard to claim that they think eight speeds was the perfect number of ratios for this engine. And to be honest, I think it really just comes down to cost. The 10 speed is fantastic. It's fantastic in the Chevys. <coughs> Pardon me. It's fantastic in the Fords. Um, Chevy should have just used that transmission. Any idea when the hybrid Corolla Cross will come out? Yes, actually. Uh, that is going to happen this month. It may actually be on sale before I drive it. I will be driving it last week of March. 
So expect it to be arriving on dealers now, um, actually for sale sometime in the next few weeks or so would be my guess there. Disheartened that BMW is moving out of physical controls. That is something that I am torn about. I, I have to admit though, I just spent a week in iDrive 8 in the i7, and then I drove my, well, the long-term EV6 that we're getting rid of, I drove it up here, I'm in Napa right now, and uh, I think I actually dislike Kia's climate controls more than iDrive 8. And I think the reason for that is that the iDrive 8 controls, um, if you're on auto, and most luxury car shoppers tend to leave their system in auto, they will configure it however they like, and they're just adjusting the temperature, those controls are static, and you just tap, tap the screen, or you can ask the car to set your temperature, etc. Um, and once you get used to it, using those voice commands seems very natural in iDrive 8. In the Kia system, the thing I dislike about that is the dual nature of the control. They have this one little bank, and it switches between infotainment and climate, and invariably, it is in the wrong mode for whatever I want to do at this moment. Um, if I want to adjust the volume, somehow it's on temperature. If I want to adjust the temperature, somehow it's set to the volume mode. I think that's actually worse than what BMW has going on there. Uh, and as far as on-screen climate controls go, I think it is relatively well laid out. Um, I think you would get used to it, let's put it that way. Uh, what can we tell us about the hybrid Ford Edge? It is long rumored, but no details on when we might see it. We probably will see it soon, though. I wouldn't be surprised if Ford rolled out something in New York in April, but if it's not there in April, you're probably going to have to wait all the way to the LA Auto Show in November. So uh, there's that. Uh, hybrid Bronco Sport. This has been rumored from some angles, but Ford keeps squashing it. They claim that they think the hybrid system doesn't fit with the personality of the Bronco Sport, which I think is a mistake myself. I would love to see one, but that's the word from Ford at the moment. Um, thoughts on the Fisker Ocean? I am curious to see if Fisker can make a financial go of it. They're not as financially sound as Rivian. Um, we have a lot of promise from Fisker on the ocean and the pair. Silly names, I think, especially the pair, because the last thing I want is for my EV to go pear-shaped, but that's a whole different topic. Um, I like the look. I like the vehicle. I just wonder if there's enough money there to actually make this work, especially in a market where it seems that there is less interest in investing in some of these startups, uh, especially startups that seem to be having some problems. It seems like they're, it's difficult for them to get new cash in. Uh, and, and as an ongoing concern, that is certainly an issue for, I think, all of the EV startups except for Lucid and Rivian at the moment. They seem to have solid financials. Uh, Rivian has a lot of cash. Rivian's doing a lot of stumbling, um, a lot of under-delivering, but they've still got a lot of cash in the bank. And they've got some very deep pockets with some of their investors. So I think that part's okay. Um, we'll see how we go there. Uh, any good websites for used car reliability? Um, your best bets for used car reliability would actually be the same ones that you use for new car reliability because they're all talking about essentially used car reliability, Paul. So um like car like a consumer reports is a good site to go to because the their better data is obviously on the used cars um this is part of my problem with 
reliability in new car reviews and making statements around this is that we don't really know how reliable a car will be until it is three or four years old. And at that point in time, the manufacturer could have changed where it's manufactured, how it's manufactured, or the model could have been significantly updated, changed, canceled, etc. Um, so most reliability metrics for new cars is predicted reliability, and that's basically crystal ball reliability. Um, it's, you know, how do I feel today? I'm just sort of, you know, waving around in the wind. Uh, does it look reliable? Um, what do the previous models tell us? How is the manufacturer gone so far? And that gives you an indication, obviously, but some manufacturers can have bad mis bad missteps. Um, just look at the rollout of this generation Lexus LS, actually, and this generation Toyota Tundra. Those have not gone well for Toyota. Um, the that, that turbo six-cylinder engine, surprisingly, even though Toyota has a lot of experience in turbocharged engines, it, it just did not go smoothly for them. And Tundra had a few other issues on that side as well. So it can happen to even the most reliable car companies out there. And you can, you know, happenstantially have a company that is known for not producing terribly reliable vehicles, uh, actually having top marks in a particular category, like Consumer Reports currently says that the Ram 1500 is the most reliable entry in the half-ton segment. So, you know, go figure on that one. Let's see, Mazda essentially does offer a lane centering type system. Um, they're, not, they're not couching it in the same way as the competition, but I would say that I think lane centering tends to be a bit overblown because they're all still hands-on-the-wheel systems. Um, the, the idea that these are somehow autonomous driving, I think, was really furthered by Tesla in an irresponsible way. Um, autopilot is hands-on-the-wheel. Um, Self-driving is, 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 even though theoretically not hands-on-the-wheel, it is eyes-on-the-road. You are in charge of the vehicle. You need to be prepared to grab the wheel at all times. Every system on sale right now in North America requires or is designed for the driver to be fully engaged in the process, even if their hands aren't on the wheel. Um, so, you know, I think that's there. Um, someone was asking about Silicon Valley Bank and if any car companies seem to be directly implicated in that. It doesn't appear to be uh, that any car companies had any major funds there. It seems to actually be um, mainly some streaming companies, et cetera, that had a lot of cash in there. Uh, but it looks like everybody's going to be getting their money from the FDIC on that. So it doesn't seem to be a big deal as far as deals go, uh, as far as the fallout. Let's put it that way. Uh, let's see here. Should I wait for the new Audi A4, get the current gen, could get the alternatives, heard the RS4 is coming here. Is that true? Uh, Audi loves a lot of rumors. Uh, so we don't know whether the RS4 is coming or not. I would love it if it came. Uh, I just don't know if it actually will um, A4 is a solid option. I do like the refreshed, whatever we want to call it, BMW 3 Series. Not everybody's a fan of the nose on the 3 Series, but that's a solid option. I actually also think that the, uh, the Volvo S60 plug-in hybrid is worth a look. I wouldn't get the regular ones. I think that the plug-in hybrid system is really where Volvo shines at the moment. Uh, infotainment system, I think, is a little bit, uh, a little bit sluggish. On the Volvos, uh, they have been working on that with the new Google Connected Infotainment System, but the new new one that we're going to see in the EX90 and above, that's really taking things to the next level. But lots of good options in that segment. Um, I don't care for the styling of the current generation C-Class, but it's also a solid option there. 
hybrid here. Um, do you expect a plug-in hybrid in 2024? No, probably no plug-in hybrid in 2024, although better availability of the Maverick is likely to happen in 2024. And rumor mills are possibly saying that we might get all-wheel drive with the hybrid at some point. Uh, remember that you can get all-wheel drive on a hybrid escape, uh, which uses the same hybrid system. We don't know exactly why they're not doing that on the Maverick. It seems that initially Ford was assuming sales of the hybrid model would be fairly low, and that is absolutely not the case. Lots of people want the hybrid. Lots of people really want the all-wheel drive hybrid as well. Um, but whether or not we'll get one, that's pretty much anybody's guess at the moment. So let's move on here. Any news on the Ranger refresh? Ford has been very tight-lipped, but I suspect after the, uh, the Mustang is officially launched, we might start seeing a bit more. Let's see here. Uh, why do you think the RZ has such low range? I don't think that's a secret. Um, it's mainly due to the extra power. So it has a more powerful motor than the BZ4X or the Busy Forks, as I prefer to call it. And it has relatively wide tires. Every RZ is going to get staggered tires and the tire compound does change. So when you work your way from uh, the just over 200 mile, 220 something mile range one down to the just under 220 mile range one, tire compound gets a lot more aggressive. Um, and what's an interesting twist is the more I sat down and thought about the RZ, the less I was offended about the range and the more I was offended about the charge time rather than the range. Because when you look at the competition excluding Tesla, because we do obviously have a much longer range Model Y, uh, I'll put that to the side for the moment. When you look at GV70 electrified, which I'm driving Thursday, uh, GV70 electrified has a relatively low range as well. Um, similar battery pack size, more expensive, um, but relatively similar other numbers, uh, about the same kind of range. GV60, considerably smaller and actually has very similar range. And I think for very similar reasons, tire compound, the drivetrain, etc. cetera, uh, choices on those models. Um, if we take a look at, for instance, an Ionic 5, Ionic 5 has 254 miles of range in the approximately 300 horsepower all-wheel drive model. So it's, it's really not far off these other options. And when you look at the ground clearance that we find in the RZ, this is another curious area actually for both the, Sol well, all three of them, the Solterra, the Busy Forks, and the RZ. They all have a strangely high amount of ground clearance. And uh, aerodynamic profile-wise, ground clearance is very important. If you, you can have the exact same shape of vehicle, lower it to the ground, cut its ground clearance in half, you'll have a much more aerodynamic, much more efficient vehicle. And for some reason, Toyota really wanted a lot of ground clearance in these models. I mean, we have nearly eight inches in the Lexus, over eight inches in the BZ4X and the Solterra. If you want more ground clearance than a Lexus RZ in your next uh, dual motor EV, you need to get a Rivian, a Lightning, uh, a Volvo EX90, uh, that's kind of, or a Hummer. I mean, those that's the company that we're talking about here. It's strangely high. Um, and that gives you extra snow capability, extra off-road capability if you want to use it. But it does have a negative impact on your range. And that range is fairly significant. So all those things together, it's a problem. 
the unfortunate part of this is that uh, I could handle the shorter range, like in the EV, uh, in the EVs from uh, from the Hyundai Kia conglomerate, from Tesla. If you choose a shorter range Tesla, etc., if they charge quickly, and those do charge fast, because you could drive 200 miles, plug it in 15 minutes later, you drive another 200 miles, easy peasy. If you drive 200 miles, you have to plug it in for 45 minutes to an hour. That's an entirely different experience than the quick stop, go to the bathroom, grab a snack, get back on the road. Um, so I think that's the tricky bit there. Uh, let's see here, moving high-end F-150 power boost uh, or Silverado three liter turbo diesel. Ah. Uh, that's a tricky one. I love the diesel. I think that the Sierra GM's three liter diesel is just chef's kiss. Fantastic. That is a, that is one of the best engines you can get. Uh, I think the, the power delivery is smooth. It sounds great. Um, somehow GM hit the nail right on the head with that engine. Um, now the rest of the truck that is, you know, your personal preference. If I could buy a truck and I could pick anything, I would pick uh, the GM 3-liter diesel, the General Motors Ford Cooperative Joint Venture 10-speed automatic transmission, and then I would choose the Ram interior and the towing and feature set of the F-150. And this is kind of the trouble here. Um, towing tech is really great on the GMC vehicles, the GM, I should say GMC and, and, uh, and Chevy vehicles. Uh, the camera views, the invisible trailer stuff, that's all really cool. Uh, the interior, I think, is still a little bit better in the Ram, at least a little bit more my personal preference in terms of style and parts quality in the upper-end trims. But Ford has them beat when it comes to the gadget count, the, the connectivity features, the app functionality, um, the, the load cells in the suspension so you know exactly what your payload is, what your towing tongue weight is, etc. Ford has that all dialed in really, really well. Um, the power boost also has the additive functionality of the onboard generator unit, which is really darn cool. If you live in an area with poor power reliability, like I do, uh, or you just like the ability to go camping and power your RV with a really quiet generator, this is an interesting twist that I think doesn't get enough attention is if you are that kind of person that tows a fifth wheel or an Airstream or something with a generator on board, um, and you don't like that loud generator because all of those vehicles have really loud generators, you can get nine kilowatts out of your F-150 power boost um, very quietly. That three liter, three and a half liter turbo engine is very, very quiet um, in the F-150. So running that to power your air conditioning, et cetera, does not use a lot of fuel. That's the other thing. It is also very fuel efficient compared to the average generator as well. Um, that's a great combo. So I would be very torn between those two deal, uh, two vehicles, but hopefully that helps you, uh, decide which direction to go in. So uh, I think some of your personal needs and preferences will definitely be factoring in there. Outback Hybrid, you know, we have been waiting for one for a while. Uh, I would not be surprised if it happens. I just don't know if it's gonna happen anytime soon. Let's put it that way. Do we know what brands will be at the New York Auto Show? We don't know exactly, um, but we know Kia will be there with the EV9. So I'm going, pretty much just to see that. I don't know too much that's going to be there that's new, but that is going to be there. Ah, the new Tacoma, I can't confirm or deny because no one will confirm or deny this, but all indications point to me seeing the Tacoma in May. There is a 
event that is happening in May. And I know nothing about it because they won't share anything at all. Um, but I assume that that's going to be the new Tacoma. It's probably going to be either the Tacoma or the Forerunner uh, because those are the only uh, only things coming up on Toyota's radar. So it's going to be one of those two things. Um, when it's going to be on sale, all of that, I have no idea. But if we do see it in May, if it is the Tacoma, well, if it is the Forerunner as well, but whatever it is, it will likely be on sale i would say by the end of the year so if we see tacoma in may it's probably going to be uh look-see only no detail then detail will come out maybe a month or two later then full details a little bit later probably a drive program in the fall and then some point thereafter you'll be able to buy the tacoma so that's probably how that's gonna gonna work um i am interested to see what what uh, Hyundai and Kia do with this one? This is a good quest question. Um, Kia's mission with their, and Hyundai as well, because we have to talk about these things together. Efficiency has been a huge driver for them. So they could clearly put a bigger battery pack in the EV6 GT uh, or in the EV6 platform and the Ionic 5 platform, etc. But they have chosen not to because they want to keep curb weight low. So when you look at EV6, there are two reasons that the EV6 handles better than Mach-E um, and has higher efficiency than Mach-E. And it's curb weight, entire size, entire, entire compound choice. So the lighter the curb weight, generally the higher your efficiency will be. And that means smaller battery pack. Um, the, the curb weight being lighter also helps improve your handling. And it also means that you can trade lighter curb weight for wider tires. If Kia were to do something like give us a bigger battery pack, like say we find in the Mach-E and the Mach-E GT, the, the trade-off for that would likely have to be skinnier tires or lower range or lower efficiency. So everything is this balancing act. Um, and in this size vehicle, Hyundai and Kia and Genesis are not the only ones that are really going for this this under 80 kilowatt hour battery pack or approximately 80 kilowatt hour battery pack. The Tesla Model Y has an approximately 80 kilowatt hour battery pack. I think it's about 82 right now. Uh, the Model 3 also has a battery pack that is relatively similar in size. Um, it just seems to be a good sweet spot for that, that lightweight construction, etc. The Model 3 and Model Y are also relatively light for a modern EV with that kind of range figure. Um, but obviously range drops pretty significantly when you take a look at those, um, those more powerful models. Um, so that's definitely, you know, a, a consideration there. Uh, thoughts on the Ionic 6? My thought on the Ionic 6 is that I will be driving it on Monday. So be sure and stay tuned. So there'll be more on that. I am curious about the look of the Ionic 6 and how that will play in the market. I, I am not sure I like it. Um, it looks a little bit too much like a Porsche whale tail on the back, and that's not a look that I like. Um, but I do like the front, and I think the interior has some cool touches in there. Um, I'm also intrigued by its range. The range looks very good. It looks like with this model, Hyundai is really focusing on ultra-slippery aerodynamics, which were not the biggest concern with the Ionic 5 and its boxy profile. Um, I... I'm curious to see whether customers will really want the range over the practicality. And that really is the play here. So 
you could get the exact same performance, essentially shorter range, greater practicality in Ionic 5, or you could get longer range and less practicality, sleeker shape in Ionic 6. Um, I'm curious to see where customers go on that one. Uh, let's see here. When will I get to drive the Prius Prime? That will be the end of this month. Everything is everything is happening this month, so um, that's coming pretty soon here. Batteries generally do last over 10 years. An uh, important thing to remember with hybrids versus um, battery electric vehicles is that they use the batteries in a very different manner, and plug-in hybrids as well. So if you're concerned about battery lifetime in a hybrid or a plug-in hybrid or an EV, then you should know that of these three format of vehicles, the EV is going to be the hardest on the battery because you're using that battery every day and you're flooring it, you're pulling the maximum power out of the battery, you're, you're re regening, you're putting the maximum power back in the battery, you're DC fast charging it. Um, all these things are happening with the battery. Uh, and if, if like many EV shoppers, even if you're not supposed to or it's not recommended, um, you're frequently charging that battery up to 100%. Um, I, I know a lot of people that do that on a regular basis. Um, in a hybrid or a plug-in hybrid, more of the battery is being reserved for system lifetime effectively. So you're never fully charging the battery. You're never fully discharging the battery. It's locked out. You don't have access to that portion of the battery. And this is possible because the battery is smaller and you have another power source on board. You have the gasoline engine. So every plug-in hybrid out there, almost without exception, again, almost, you floor it, it's going to turn on the gasoline engine. Um, even the RAV4 Prime, which will stay in EV mode for a really long time, there are conditions where for battery preservation, it will turn on the gasoline engine without depleting the battery completely. So on my daily commute, for instance, if I'm climbing up Highway 17, uh, which is one of the highway passes near where I am, you're going from sea level to 2,200 foot feet, uh, 2,200 feet pretty rapidly, uh, the gasoline engine will turn on for battery preservation, even though it's blocked in EV mode, you can floor it, stays in EV mode, accelerates nicely up the hill, etc. About two thirds of the way up, plenty of battery on offer, it will go into uh, hybrid mode for battery life preservation um, because it can and it should. That's very logical. That's exactly what you want your plug-in hybrid to do because you want that battery to, to live a nice, long, happy life. Um, in an EV, you don't have that choice. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. Uh, let's see here. How big is the Maverick Interior compared to RAV4 Hybrid? Um, better for car seats. Oh, RAV4 is definitely going to be better, but RAV4 is on the small side for a compact crossover. Um, Maverick interior is more subcompact sized in the back seat because of the reality of having that bed in the back. Anytime you want to have a uh, compact car-like room on the inside and a usable bed in the back, the vehicle is going to be a certain size, but there's only so much room to go around. So Maverick is wider than Bronco inside, but, you know, Bronco Sport, sorry, wider than Bronco Sport inside, but about Bronco Sport as far as the rear seat room goes. Uh, if you have three child seats, this is probably not going to work well for you unless they're very, very skinny. Um, you're probably going to want to take a look at something else. Um, in this category, I would suggest taking a look at a Honda Ridgeline. The Ridgeline is definitely wider because it's essentially a Honda Pilot pickup truck. So the second row, well, the, the back row, because there's only one, uh, is much wider. And as a result, you're definitely going to be able to fit those three child seats a lot more easily back there. If you can fit them in a Pilot, you should be able to fit them in a Ridgeline. Unfortunately, 
you won't have that hybrid drivetrain. That's just going to be the, the way that's going to go. Um, hybrid, uh, my top pick for a hybrid in car seats, especially multiple car seats, would be the uh, the Hyundai Santa Fe hybrid. It's the only hybrid in that mid-size two-row segment um, that is roomy. That's the big thing to keep in mind there. Uh, moving along here, hybrid Carnival, hybrid Odyssey doesn't seem like they're in the books at all, unfortunately. A hybrid a three-cylinder turbo. Um, if you haven't seen my video on the three-cylinder Rogue Turbo, I think you should actually watch it. I like it a lot. Um, I like it way more than the variable compression four-cylinder from Nissan. It still hunts around a bit. I wish it was paired with a different transmission, but the three-cylinder engine is actually great. Most people that drove in it actually thought that it was a six-cylinder because harmonically, the sound of a three-cylinder uh, three engine actually is very similar to a six. Uh, this is a good question. Um, not a lot is generally the answer, so there's no specific protection for fire protection, uh, prevention or, or, or fire prevention methodology in these systems other than just really protecting the battery pack from crash, from crush type injuries. Um, all EV battery packs will catch on fire. Generally, the fire profile is going to be slower and easier to escape from than a gasoline or diesel fire in a traditional ICE vehicle, but that fire is gonna be a lot harder to put out. And this is just the reality that we have with newer technology. Um, the good point, good side of this is that fires seem to be a lot less common in EVs. The data is gonna take a lot of time to really parse though, because EVs have not been out long enough. So we don't really have decent data sets on EV fires versus ICE fires from any particular outlet. Um, there are some studies out there, but a lot of them, especially the ones that are, I think, being more thorough, will admit that there is limited data. And, um, you know, we're living in a world where 45 million vehicles are sold every, every year in the U.S., 15 million of them are new, and only about 1% of the new cars, 1.5% to 2% actually, sorry, of the new cars are EVs. Very few used cars are EVs. So we're talking about a very limited number of vehicles on road at the moment. Um, so the data sets can take a while for it to really, uh, really come out. Is the higher insurance premium, this is not solely a Tesla issue. This is a good question here. It is not solely a Tesla issue, but it does seem to really highlight some of the issues with Tesla's supply chain. So uh, higher insurance premiums on Tesla's seems to be a function of battery packs that are difficult to repair without Tesla being involved. Tesla's preferred method is replace the pack. So you can't repair the pack, you replace the pack. Um, that really drives up insurance costs. Also, parts availability is tricky there. Um, and Tesla doesn't seem to have uh, too much of a focus on that. So manufacturers will say, well, we can't buy it. We can't find the part in any reasonable amount of time. We're just going to total the car, make it go away. Um, I did notice that the EV6 that we have, its insurance rates were higher than a comparable plug-in hybrid uh, from the same manufacturer with comparable pricing. So keep that in mind. There is still some concern with, with every manufacturer's of EVs. I don't know yet what pricing will be like on a General Motors uh, Ultium family vehicle. I'm really going to be intrigued to see how that that goes because a lot of the focus on Ultium 
has been this, this focus on repairability and replaceability of individual modules. Similarly, we see that in Volvo's EVs and the Polestar EVs, that ability to replace modules. Um, whether or not that has a substantive impact on uh, cost of insurance, we don't know yet. So um, definitely something to keep in mind. Dodge Hornet, uh, our PHEV, that should be going on sale very soon. Uh, that video is going to go live at the end of this month. Brian was driving that out in Asheville, North Carolina, and he really liked it. Uh, fortunately, I can talk about it because I didn't drive it and I'm not breaking an embargo. Um, but everybody seems to love uh, the Hornet. Um, I'm a little bit interested to see what this does for the Alfa Romeo Tonali because this pairing, these two vehicles here, um, Alfa Romeo Tonali and Dodge Hornet, this deal seems really great for Dodge, but I'm not sure what Alfa is getting out of the deal other than maybe slightly lower production costs because they can uh, have higher volume in that factory. Um, but these two vehicles are very, very similar. Uh, they might be tuned slightly differently. Um, we'll see how it goes. Uh, but there's not a lot of difference hardware-wise. Um, I'm, I'm curious to see how this goes. I'm also curious to see how the Hornet plays in the market when you won't get the tax credit on it. And that is a big problem for me. Um, I think it's clear that it was thought of in a world where they would both get the tax credit. And for the Alpha, it makes it's of less importance for the Alpha and its luxury shopper. But for the Dodge Hornet, I would say that the, the tax credit is definitely going to be important. Um, again, two different ways to look at this. If, if the Hornet is actually being purchased by someone with a lower lower income versus a Dodge Durango, if you are actually achieving a younger, less affluent audience than Durango, for instance, then the tax credit doesn't matter because you can easily be a, a family of four or five in the Midwest making a reasonable income that owns a home, has child tax credits, etc., that does not pay any federal tax or pays very little federal tax. And in that case, you wouldn't get the tax credit anyway, so it does not matter. But if you are eligible for the tax credit, um, say you're a renter and uh, you're a high-income single renter somewhere, you probably would get the full tax credit, then it would be of more importance. So um, you know, keep that one in mind. Uh, what are your thoughts on iX versus EX90? This is a really interesting one. Um, I think that they appeal to two different uh, kinds of people. Um, I would lean more towards EX90 because it has the third row. That's the biggest difference, obviously, is that third row. Um, if you want the two row, then it's really more of an iX versus Polestar 3 because that's the two row equivalent. Uh, and that would be an intriguing comparison because those are more focused on performance, um, more focused on handling, etc. And EX90 really is trying to be the next generation XC90 that happens to be electric. Uh, it's more focused on on family values, child child seat functionality, the integrated booster seat, the third row boxy cargo area in the back. It's speed limited to a much lower speed than we find in the Polestar lineup. Um, Volvo has said that the the Volvo line will not get the same level of high-performance options that we find in the Polestar lineup. So even though there is going to be a more powerful EX90, 
it's not going to be that next level of performance that we find in the Polestar lineup. So a bit of differentiation there, but I am curious to see um, how that goes. I agree with this one, Matthew, and I'm actually okay with this. Um, I wish it was done in a more thoughtful fashion, better timeline, but I agree with the goals. I agree with the goals of saying, you know what? Not only do we want greener EVs, we need the jobs back in America. So if you want to build EVs, uh, that's lovely. You do you. Everybody's got a future. Someday that will be the case and it will be required. It's not the case now. There is actually no national mandate for EVs and even no California mandate for EVs that has teeth because the California ZEV mandate, no fines. It's The goalpost keeps moving. It's a goalpost with no definite date. Think of it that way. But... Things are marching in this direction, but if that's the way you want to march and you want the tax credit, you got to build them here and the content has to come from X places. Um, I actually wish it was more of a tiered system and it was more encouraging of specifically United States manufacturing, because remember that for the, for the EV tax credit, you could build the EV in Canada or you could build the EV in Mexico and still qualify for the tax credit. Um, so there's there's that, but I think it's moving in the right direction. At any rate, well, it is now 6.22 and I must sign off. So with all of that, I encourage you all to find us over at Facebook. Uh, you'll find us as uh, the Auto Buyer's Guide over there. Also check out the EV Buyer's Guide page or the Alex Nottos page where you have uh, tried the other one. And we'll see all of you next week. Bye now. <laughs>